We went from one day being an operating family farm, a farm that I saw my future on, and the next morning when the bank president called and said, we've got to have a conversation because things have changed, to be in a position that I felt like I could help farmers make better business decisions, that was really appealing to me. Hello and welcome to Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. This is where leaders, growers, and stakeholders in the corn industry can turn for big picture conversations about the state of the industry and its future. I'm Dusty Weiss, and I'll be introducing your host, Association CEO John Doggett. From the fields of the Corn Belt to the D.C. Beltway, we're making sure that the growers who feed America have a say in the issues that are important to them, with key leaders who are shaping the future of agriculture. Chip Flory is sometimes called the voice of rural America. Host of the AgriTalk radio program and podcast, he brings ag news, policy updates, and expert insights to a network of more than 135 radio stations across the U.S. So in this episode, we flip the script on Chip, interviewing him at the National Corn Growers Association booth on the show floor at Commodity Classic. Plus, we finally settle, once and for all, who is the biggest music buff? Chip Flory or NCGA CEO John Doggett. But if you haven't yet, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast in your favorite app. Also, make sure you follow the NCGA on Twitter at National Corn and sign up for the National Corn Growers Association newsletter at NCGA.com. And with that, it's time to once again introduce John. John Doggett, the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. And John, they say turnabout is fair play. Well, over the years, there's a fellow who's regularly called upon you, picked your brain, raked you over the coals with tough questions on his AgriTalk program. And his name's Chip Flory. His name is Chip Flory. He is a good friend. He is an outstanding ag reporter. And I have been on your show, what, a couple dozen times? Oh, a couple, yeah, yeah, at least yeah, a couple yeah. dozen yeah. times. And, yeah. and so we talked about, let's do a podcast, a classic, and we kicked ideas around. I said, let's get Flory on the program. And I am <laughs> so glad you're here. I have just thoroughly really enjoyed being on your show over and over again. I am just tickled to death that you're on mine. I think I'm glad I'm here. I think we'll figure this out as we go. I'm not exactly sure. It's been a long time since I've spent this much time on this side of the mic. I don't know how this is going to go. Are you at such an age now that you can't go ahead and deal with change? <laughs> no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Says the guy who didn't want to use a different set of headphones than he's used to. <laughs> no, I thank you. Thank you so much for asking. Chip, we're just going to start. Who do you work for? What do you do? Why are you here? Uh, I'm the host of AgriTalk. AgriTalk, in its original format, has been around for more than 25 years. Ken Root was the first host of AgriTalk. Ken and I are good friends today. Mike Adams was after Ken, and, and I took over for Mike four years ago on the morning show. The afternoon show, the second hour of AgriTalk, is something that I really am proud of. And I'm proud of the morning show. Don't get me wrong. I love doing it. But the afternoon show, with its focus, Focus on markets. It's something that we started from scratch. Now, the fine people at Farm Journal with their network that was already in place for AgriTalk gave us a great platform to go out and build a new show from. But to go to market with a brand new one-hour ag-based show that starts at two o'clock in the afternoon, 
that was a stretch. It was a stretch for a lot of stations, and now it's on 135 stations in 19 states. So I'm really, really proud of the afternoon show and the market side of things that we cover in the afternoon. I was pro farmer editor for 25 years. We talked markets, we talked policy, we talked issues, but the number one thing that we talked about is markets and what to do to manage the risks that you face on a regular basis. So to turn what I did for 25 years into a show that people really seem to respond to, that's pretty rewarding. You have a lot of reason to be proud of that, yeah. my friend. You absolutely do. So what? tell me a little more about your background. Where were you born and raised? How did you get here? No, I grew up on a farm in eastern Iowa. It was a very diverse family farm that went through what farms went through in the late 70s and early 80s. I was 15 years old when we had farm sale in 1980. And my brother's 10 years older than I am. He and my dad had gotten into a position that the bank said was a bad spot to be in. And I was only 15, but I was old enough to know what was going on. But I know that the payments were still being made. I know that everything was being handled. I know that the operation was running as it was supposed to run. It's just that once the rules changed, the rules changed, and there was no fighting it. And so we went from one day being an operating family farm, a farm that I saw my future on, I expected and was planning to be another farmer on that home place. And the next morning when the bank president called and said, we've got to have a conversation because things have changed. That was a trying time for our family. And so I've got an appreciation for farming and farmers and for the trials and the tribulations and the risks that they face. And to be in a position that I felt like I could help farmers manage those risks, help farmers make better business decisions. That was really appealing to me. It was 1981. I was a sophomore in high school. We were driving down the road. Dad and I were, and Dad was still farming, even after the farm sale. We were driving down the road, and on the radio came on the Pro Farmer Minute. It was a short little one-minute hit with an idea that would be in there, maybe a hint at how you should go about your risk management. And Dad stopped the truck, turned around, we went back to the house, and he said, I got to take care of this now. I got to do something about it. By the way, you know who was reporting that Pro Farmer Minute at that time? Who? Ron Michelson, the father of one Davis Michelson. That's I'll be going darned. back a yep. long time ago. Yes. So that was 1981. Well, that had such an impact on me that the one minute that Dad heard caused him to turn the truck around and go home and take some action. It left an impression on me. It really did. And my mom was a journalist for 60 years. She was a rural correspondent. So I had the reporting blood in me. I had the love of agriculture. I had the influence from my dad. And then I saw Pro Farmer in action. And it was just something that I decided that I wanted to do. I decided at that time, before I graduated high school, I decided that I wanted to be the editor of Pro Farmer someday. And so you were looking for a career rather than a job. Oh, absolutely. And, and a mission to boot. Absolutely. I was very active in 4A. John. And the whole goal-driven decision-making and the setting of goals and following through and writing out goals, I bought into that stuff hook, line, and sinker. And so I applied the lessons that I was learning from 4-H. I 
took it right over to my life and my career. And I knew if it was possible, I wanted to do one job interview in my life, and that was it. And you know, those stories, particularly those of us who are in agriculture in the 80s, and I remember vividly my wife and I, shortly after we were married in 1980, going back to the ranch, it was probably about 82, 83, having the conversation with the family. Yeah. And my brother was already back at the ranch, and times were really tough. He'd just bought my uncle out a couple years before, and he bought the place next door a few years after that. And he just looked at me and said, I'd love to have you come back. Yeah. But here's the economic reality. And that has stuck with me for the rest of my life. And it has driven a lot of what I have done throughout my career as well. But those moments that you all of a sudden realize that this is something, it's something you need to act on. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And when dad wrapped up in the house, whatever it was that he did, I don't remember all the details of it. But whatever it was that Ron Michelson caused dad to stop and go back and do it spurred up the most heartfelt conversation between a dad and a 16 year old that it could have ever spurred it was the conversation of the economic reality of a 200 acre farm in 1981 for mom and dad it might work for mom and dad and the next generation that's not going to work. Everybody's going to have to work in town. Right. And so then what? You went to Iowa State? Right. I was a little slow in making decisions. I'll admit that in high school. I mean, like I said, I was very active in 4-H, and it was almost like I didn't want that to end. I might have hung on just a little bit too long. I enrolled at Iowa State University a little late, was trying to figure out exactly how I wanted to do and what it should look like. So here I am, a senior in high school. I call up Cedar Falls, Iowa and the Pro Farmer headquarters and just ask to talk to an editor. And uh, they put Bob Kaufman on the line with me. And I explained to him who I was and that I'd been reading Pro Farmer for a couple of years. And I'm a big fan of the Pro Farmer Minute. Love the impact and love the information and the guidance, the influence that comes from Pro Farmer. And I very bluntly said, Bob, what do I got to do if I want to be the editor of Pro Farmer someday? What do I take at Iowa State? A rather audacious question (laughs) as a senior in high school. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What if I want your job someday? So we made a plan. We made a plan on the phone that day. Bob helped me make that plan. I wrote it all down. I took it with me to Iowa State. Verl Fritz was my advisor at Iowa State in the journalism department. I put that piece of paper in front of him and he says, "Ah, I don't know, the top part here we can handle. I don't know about this bottom part, if we can handle that or not. I said, oh, well, that's disappointing. He says, well, we can't handle it right now. Let's get it figured out. So we got Rob Dieter from the Ag Economics Department and we got Paul Lassley from the Sociology Department, just one of the great minds in rural sociology, Paul Lassley. And Rob Dieter was a heck of a teacher too, my favorite. And uh, they got together and put together a program, a minor for me, that was ag socioeconomics. So how money affects the decision-making process. They put that program together for me. So I went through, got a degree in ag journalism with a broadcast emphasis and a minor in ag socioeconomics. Ag socioeconomics. Yep. That's a mouthful. Yes. Yeah, absolutely it is. Then you won't believe who called finals week. Who? Bob Kaufman. And he said, Chip, I just wanted to check up on you and see how things are going. I said, Bob, your timing is absolutely unbelievable to me. I've got one final left. And uh, he says, well, we don't have a job open here, but let's keep in contact. Next day, sitting in the apartment, the phone rings again. And it was a guy by the name of Jeff Wilson, who was the bureau chief for Commodity World News, which became Futures World News. But it was a wire service owned by Oster Communications, which also owned Pro Farmer. And it was a job 
reporting from the Chicago Board of Trade, reporting on what's happening in the grain markets. I looked at it as my foot in the door to eventually get to Pro Farmer. I never expected to get the experience that I got spending three and a half years on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade, floor of the Mercantile Exchange, and the way that the commodity markets and risk management and just how the markets flow together, how that bit me, I never expected that to happen. I just thought I'm getting my foot in the door. I'm going to live in Chicago only for as long as I have to. And then I'm getting out of there. And I'll admit, three and a half years in Chicago for this kid was enough. But boy, I tell you what, it's, that's three and a half years that I would never give up there. Drinking from the fire hose. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Man. Yeah. And getting getting opportunity to make all sorts of mistakes and yep. learning from them. Boy, that has to have been just super. Oh, it was fantastic. Well, and you talked, too, about how 4-H influenced you. And, and certainly one of the things that they teach you in 4-H is entrepreneurialism. Yeah. And when you talk about approaching your advice at Iowa State and saying, hey, I want you to build a miner for me. That's an entrepreneurial spirit right there. But you went on. You guys have built a network of, what did you say, 135 affiliates now? Yeah. And going into the journalism world and making it there, you know, not a whole lot easier than farming, certainly. But to go in and and succeed the way that you have and to build out a network of 135 affiliates around the country, that takes a lot of entrepreneurialism, too. And a heck of a team. I mean, an unbelievable team in doing that. Brian Conradi at Farm Journal broadcast headquarters in South Bend, Indiana. He leads an awesome team. And then I got so much support from Clinton Griffiths, Ag Day anchor, from Tyne Morgan, the host of U.S. Farm Report. On the broadcast team, I'm the young guy because they've been around at Farm Journal longer than I have. So that's really interesting. But, you know, coming off of 17 years as editor of Pro Farmer, which I will still contend is the coolest gig ever. I love, love, love what I'm doing. But that time that I spent as editor of Pro Farmer, and you know, for the first, I don't know, 10 years, some of it might have been, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I'm actually doing this. But the opportunities that I had as Pro Farmer editor, get out on the road, talk to people, talk to that guy that's walking by over there right now, Keith Hora, one of my absolute favorites, gave me my first break as pro farmer editor on a big story. That guy that just walked by. And a great guy too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. But the pro farmer editor, it's not just being the editor. It is a responsibility to the membership of professional farmers of America. And boy, I took that serious. And the thing is, over the years, the people that I worked with at Pro Farmer, I still work with Jim Wiesmeyer. Jim Wiesmeyer is a Pro Farmer policy analyst. He's the Washington guy. Didn't ever want to be the editor. But a guy that I worked with at Iowa State, a guy that I hired to work with me in Chicago when I was the bureau chief in Chicago for a period of time, Scott Davis, he worked with him up until it was the early 2000s. But I was in his way. That guy was going to be Pro Farmer editor. And I was in his way. And I was trying to figure out what in the world can I do to give him the sense of responsibility, sense of urgency, the sense of ownership that you get when you are the editor of that newsletter. And we succeeded on that for several years, but he wanted it as bad as I did, and I was in the way. He's now an unbelievably successful risk manager, broker up in Rochester. So he was one of the guys that I just loved working with Scott. And the other guy's Brian Grady, good Lord. You know, I was definitely in his way, and it was starting to become very much apparent. And he had ambitions to be the editor. I wanted him to be the editor, 
And then when the opportunity came along to do the afternoon show, get that up and running, get that started, and then later the opportunity to add the morning hour. That was plenty of incentive and is still just crazy rewarding enough to make the move and I'll say it, to give up the coolest gig there is in ag journalism. Well, I feel a little bit the same way about, I love being the CEO of the, the corn growers, but yeah. you know what? Running that Washington office, that was the neatest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. But of course, we had some wins, and that was great. And, yeah. You know, but yeah, it's the steps along the way. It's the people along the way. It's, you know, I've had some wonderful mentors uh, throughout my time. Dale Moore, who just announced yeah. his yeah. retirement his, yesterday. Yes. Yeah. I mean, in, in 1988, I went moved out to Washington, D.C. February, and the chief of staff said, you know, the Congressman Marlin and Congressman Roberts, they're good buds. And He's got a guy who's really good on ag stuff, a young guy by the name of Dale Moore. You need to go buy him a cup of coffee, and I did. And I've, Holy been, and I've been doing that ever since. But, wow. you know, and, and people like Dick Newfer at Farm Bureau and all those folks that, you know, along the way. And it wasn't the guys that gave you the praise. It was the ones that said, hey, listen, you yep. knucklehead, you ought to try something a little bit different. And I, I see Dusty's nodding his head, I've, too. I've gotten that talk a few times yeah. over the years, <laughs> I'll tell you that. I'm, I'm looking over at Larry, and he's going, yeah, I'm the guy. <laughs> Larry and I, actually, we just found out a couple weeks ago, we lost a good mentor of ours. Larry and I, of course, Larry, our producer, have known each other since we were students at a student radio station at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the general manager, Dave Black, is a legend in his own time, passed away recently terrible, terrible news, oh. and, and our hearts go out to his family, but it got me thinking about one of the best things that Dave Black ever did for me was when I was a sophomore in college, and I had just joined up at the radio station. I was, you know, kind of loosely involved, and I was phoning it in, if yeah. I'm being honest, looking back at it. Then at the end of the semester, I went up to Dave Black. I asked him, hey, Dave, you write me a letter of recommendation? He looks me square in the eyes and goes, nope. And I what do you mean? What do you mean, no? And he looks at me and he says, I know that you are capable of contributing a lot more to our student radio station. I want to see you get involved and apply yourself and really show me what you've got. And frankly, I need to get to know you better because a recommendation is a sacred thing to me. And I don't know you well enough to recommend you to anybody. So no, I won't write you a letter of recommendation today. That's not to say the door's not open in the future. Yeah. But show me what you've got. Yep. And then a year later, when I came back to him after really putting my back into it for a year and asked him for a letter of recommendation, he was more than happy and, and signed it yep. with a flourish. And it felt all that better for having gotten it that way. Yeah, you bet. Good stuff. That's a tough one to, to lose right yeah. there. Yeah, one of my mentors just recently passed, too, Jerry Passer from WMT. I had the WMT scholarship. Jeez, I think it was 1986. So I got to spend the summer with Jerry Passer and Rich Balvans and Jane in the farm department at WMT in Cedar Rapids. So that was fun. Yeah, certainly. You know, hearing you tell these stories, Chip, about your time in the industry and agriculture's always been a really tight-knit community, but particularly the ag media, I think, has always had those really really deep roots and and people that have long histories in this business. But how would you say that the ag media landscape has changed in your time here? Well, somehow, some way, they're getting younger. (laughs) I've noticed noticed that (laughs) as well. (laughs) Or is it that I'm just getting old? I don't know. The way that it has changed is on the broadcast side, the people that are still in it can do so much with so little. They've gone through continuous budget cuts. They've gone through the tightening of the screws so many times. And to see the job that they still do and the level of commitment, to see their dedication to their 
station to their region, to their listeners, just blows me away. In so many ways, they're a one-man shop. They have to prep the news. They have to deliver the news. Then they might go out and cover high school sports that night. Then they have to go and talk with the people that are advertising on the station. Then they got to deal with FCC over, over things. I look at what those guys do, and it just blows me away because... I study the news. I study the markets. I spend time networking with the smartest people that I can find. I spend time preparing for conversations. And somebody else is out there managing the affiliates. And somebody else is out there making sales. So I look at the team that I've got, and it it just, it's awesome. But to see the level of commitment of the farm broadcasters that are working out there at, at an individual station, absolutely blows me away. I spent some time with some up-and-coming farm journalists from Iowa State here just recently. Very encouraged there. I think we're going to be just fine. We've got good people, smart people that are coming into the industry. But the complexity of the issues that they're going to have to understand going forward It just blows me away. It's so many things that we deal with, more and more things. The difference between the policy resolutions that we talked about this morning with the corn growers, much different than it was 20 years ago. Right. Yeah, we still talk about farm programs. We still talk about ethanol. We still talk about ethanol. We still talk about ethanol. But we're talking about more and more things. And we're here at the trade show. Let's just take a look around and take a look at all of the technology that's here. Oh, yeah. And we all have to manage it, but boy. But think of the choices that that presents for someone that wants to get into farm journalism right now. If you want to specialize, see, that's one of the things that I decided very early on was that I was going to specialize in markets and analysis. And I think that really benefited me throughout my career. If somebody new decides to focus on technology, they're going to be around for a long time focus on, on technology, but be able to explain it to people at my tender Right. Age. Yeah. Right. Uh, 66-year-olds don't understand technology nearly as well as my eight-year-old granddaughter. But, you know, it's how do we take that? That's the thing I like about what you do, and I feel it every time I'm on your program. You invest the time to understand the, the issues. You invest the time in looking at yeah. the facts, and then you have to turn around and take something that's quite complex and put it in a form that is short, sweet, concise, understandable. That's a talent. Yeah, believe me, there are many times where I think there's no way that we're going to be able to get all of this into a 10-minute conversation. And when you think about a lot of the formats that are out there, the interviews are two or three minutes. You know that. I mean, when you're on my show, sometimes I feel like there's a weight lifted off of you a bit because you've got a little bit more time. You can explain things a little bit further. We can have a little fun, joke around at the start of something. But when you get constrained to that two, two and a half minute, almost soundbite conversation, I understand that those types of interviews are very important. But I consider mine just a little bit longer format in these 10-minute conversations that we get to have. And in the afternoon show, when we're talking markets, I have a single guest on for 20 minutes. And that's because in 10 minutes, you can't really get from them what they are thinking about the markets. Now, when it comes time to talk about tariffs on fertilizer, something like that, we can get you on and in 10 minutes, we get to the end of that and I feel like I understand exactly why the NCGA is pushing this as hard as they are. That's the kind of 
format of information that I enjoy delivering the most. And that's why we're doing this podcast is because right. we have to have more conversations and fewer sound bites. Right. Some things don't fit into a 140-character tweet. Oddly enough, no. <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? Let's go into some other things. And Julie, of course, you know Julie. She, yeah. she, she always has lots of questions, and some of which she wrote down, some of which she kind of giggled and laughed and told me about. But right. uh, craziest guest you've ever interviewed? You mean besides John Doggett? John, John's going to make that list. <laughs> I'm not going to be at the top of the list, though. Okay. Um, Jim Morrison. The Jim Morrison? Not that Jim Morrison. No. Remember the movie The Rookie? Yeah. Okay? Yeah. The pitcher, high school coach, made his way through minor leagues and made his way to pitch for Texas. At the start of COVID, everybody was just like, how in the world are we going to get through this? I can't believe that we've been shut down. And one night I was watching The Rookie and I was like, I texted my producer, Joe Stackler. I texted him immediately and said, let's get this Jim Morrison on the show and let's find out what he's doing. See if he's, we could get him on and talk about, you know, some motivational for us all. All right. He was an absolute blast. We've had him on. I think three times. And uh, he's an absolute blast, and he was a big shot of motivation. So that was fun. The time that I was sitting looking at my call screener screen and saw Oliver North on there... That was that was that was interesting. That was a little intimidating to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was after President Trump ordered the strike on one of the terrorists in the Middle East and got him. Mm -hmm. Okay, I can't remember his name. I wondered exactly what it might mean for relations in the region. Who in the heck would we talk to about it? Just thought, let's get the old colonel on and and he agreed to come on and talk about it sometimes it, you got to shoot your shot yeah that's right yeah. so oliver north that was an interesting one and it still blows me away and it's gotten to the point that he's almost a regular on the show now and oh man i'm gonna really show how much of a geek i am here jared bernstein the white house council of economic advisors when obama was president Jared was on CNBC all the time as the economic spokesman for the Obama administration. And I can't tell you how many arguments I've had with Jared over the years. He never answered me once. I don't I guess he couldn't hear me through the TV, but I would scream at the TV while he was on there and just dream of the day where I could have a conversation with this guy. He's now kind of a regular on the show. And I ask him the questions that I would ask through the TV. And he responds. And it is not confrontational at all. He knows that he's going to get, okay, we're going to talk about the jobs report, but then he's probably also going to bring up, I'm going to go to something else in the conversation. The last jobs report that was on, of course, what we went to was, when are we going to become energy independent again? When will we see the rules and regulations in this country promote fluid fuel use in this country and uh, open it up so that we get the prices at the pump down. You know, he talked about, well, energy independence comes in many different ways. You've got your solar, you've got your wind, you've got this, you've got that. And I said, Jared, that's not what we are talking about. We are talking about pumping more. And he says, that message has been heard at the White House now. He said that last Friday. Just this week, you can tell that that message has been heard at the White House, that if they don't put more crude, more gasoline, 
more opportunity to blend some ethanol into the system that if they thought they were going to get beat next November, they really think they're going to get beat next November now. So who's the most famous person that you ever interviewed? The one that you felt a little bit intimidated? Oh my God, I can't believe that I'm actually talking to the Queen of England. You, you have not had Queen Elizabeth on your show. No, I've not had. <laughs> I don't know what we'd talk about, honestly. Corgis. Well, we could do that. They're cute little fellers. Gosh. When I was the editor of Pro Farmer, I was really, really hard on Tom Vilsack 1.0 under Obama, especially in his first two years, because he was not focused on commercial agriculture. He was not focused on the people that feed the world. He was focused on farmers' markets, which is fine, but that's not the responsibility of the Secretary of Agriculture. By the time he wrapped up his first eight years, I was a fan of his attention to commercial and production agriculture. So now that we're on to Vilsack 2.0, I get an opportunity to talk with him on a regular basis. That's pretty cool. He's a lot more accessible now than he was those first couple of years. I, you know, it was just horrible. But now, if you really need to talk to the secretary, you can get on the phone with the secretary if you really need to, and he will give you the attention. And Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Senator Chuck Grassley is unbelievably generous with his time on the show. He's on roughly every six weeks, five, six weeks. That's a pretty famous guy. And if it wouldn't have been for the fact that I worked... 15 miles from his place and he was a pro farmer member and every now and then he would stop in the office anyway if it wasn't for that I'd probably be really intimidated every time I got on the phone with him but seeing as we had an acquaintance before it's really cool to get him on and and talk with him he's so influential so who is the guest that you wish you could have your dream guest that you have not been able to get yet and may might not be able to Okay, everything stays real upfront and current with me on stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know who I can't get? Who? It's somebody that called you the day that he got the dang job. I cannot get Michael Regan, EPA administrator. And like I said, I, I mean, it's not like that's somebody that I've been chasing for 10 years or anything like that. I don't think there's really anybody that I've been chasing for 10 years to get him on the show. But that guy right now or that person right now is Regan. You know, the request goes in every yeah. week. Yeah, well, we've had a request in to, to meet with the administrator since, I think, two days after he became confirmed. And that's we have yet to have the courtesy of a reply. Maybe when this podcast goes out, maybe somebody at EPA, I don't know if they'll be listening to this, but we can hope. We can send it to him. Yeah, we can, we can send, send it to him. Yeah. Exactly. At least it's a little clip. From New Orleans with love. Yeah. Let <laughs> <laughs> it do it. So, Chip, we talk in commodity organizations all the time. Got to get our voice out. Got to get our message out. Got to inform people. What can commodity groups do better, in your mind, to talk to two audiences? One, the audience that you speak to every day, farmers and people involved in agriculture. And what can we do better, in your mind, to get our message out to a broader audience? Consumers or influencers or whoever. I'm of that age now where I've seen things change and I'm prone to get tied into things, into how I think things should be done. And for the first, I don't know, three years, four years, when a younger listener would come up to me and say, Chip, I listen to your podcast all the time. I love it. Thanks. But it's not really a podcast. You know, it's a radio show. And they like, what? I said, well, it's, it's a radio program that just happens to also be a podcast. Well, I 
stopped fighting that and started embracing that and the change that it made when I was doing it radio-minded first, you know, in the publishing journalism media business, we have this digital-first attitude. Let's make sure that we get a good story out there as fast as we can. And if it comes back later in print, that's fine. But it's digital first. Okay. I was always radio first. And to me, based on the training that I had and the, the attitude that I had, the radio first took a di- little bit of a different attitude than podcast first. And when I just kind of thought, yeah, I'm going to have this conversation with Joe. I'm going to have this conversation with Davis Michelson, my news anchor about this, you know, subtle change. Maybe we think podcast first, radio second. We did that, and all of a sudden, the tone, the tempo of the conversation, everything just kind of changed, picked up, got even more casual than what it was when we were thinking radio first. And the response on radio has been fantastic. Now, the older listeners that before were always very encouraging about what we were doing on the show are even more encouraging now. And they still come up and say, hey, I listen to you on the radio. Love your show. Love the way that you and Davis love love this, love that. Information's great. We've kind of taken on an attitude that we're really sports talk radio for farmers, which is really weird because I don't think Davis has ever listened to a day of sports talk in his life. But uh, just the simple fact that we take what we do seriously, we know that what we are reporting and conversing on is very important to those people that are listening because so many of them have chosen to listen. (laughs) It's not that they just jumped in the truck and the show was on and they're listening. These people have chosen to listen by going and actively seeking out the information. So if there is a way that you can discover to make your communications, make the membership seek it out because it's so dang good and so dang important that they come to you and grab it, boy, then you got it. Neil Kasky, my VP of comms, is standing right over there, and and, and he and I are going to have this conversation as soon as we get done recording here, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, now I love it just because of my change in attitude. Now I love it when somebody comes up and says, man, I love your podcast. I love it. It's because you realize those people actively went after it, grabbed it, and spent an hour listening to it. Blows me away. So get them to come get it. Yeah, but that, that puts a lot of responsibility on you to deliver. Yeah, you can make a misstep once or twice. No. You know what? I do 40 segments a week in radio. If one of them's a bummer and I just go, Jason Davis is like, well, that one's kind of okay, but eh, let's not do that again. We can kind of laugh that off. If it happens a second time in a week, then it's the let's straighten up here, guys. We're doing something wrong. So one time out of 40, let's not let that happen again. Two times out of 40, it's time to reevaluate. So commitment to quality and a respect of the time of the people that are consuming the information. Well, you certainly have done that in, as a, a listener as well as a guest on your program. I greatly value it. And Good. greatly value Thank you. what you do and, and what you do for our industry. And you keep us on our toes occasionally. Well, I try to. I know you do. (laughs) If it's going to be something really big, I'll call. Yeah. And let you know first. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe. Well, you know, fellas, 
anyone who listens to John's appearances on Chip's show regularly knows yep. that you're both pretty big music buffs. Sure. I think that's safe to say. And in fact, I think that a lot of thought goes into uh, careful selection of whatever the bumper music no, is. No, no there's leading, no thought going into leading it. John Doggett. <laughs> but that much said, a little bird suggested to me that it might be fun to settle once and for all who's the king cheese around here in terms of music trivia. So oh. uh, if you're amenable, I've got a little trivia game set up here, um, some classic rocks and 60s, 70s, 80s rock and roll. And uh, I hope you made the crown in his head size, not mine. <laughs> Seven and five eighths. <laughs> little rock, paper, scissors to see who leads off. I see John Doggett. Yep, he had scissors. I had paper. Well, John, that's going to give you the option. Do you want to go first or second? I'll go first. All right, there we go. First category, backing bands. I'm going to rattle off a solo musician. You've got five seconds to tell me the name of their most well-known backing band according to Google Autocomplete. The answer is going to be in the form of artist and -and so-and-so. For example, Paul McCartney and Wings. We all ready? Yeah. All right, coming to John Doggett first. Tom Petty. And the Heartbreakers. Chip, Joan Jett. And the Blackhearts. That's right. John, Bob Seeger. Oh! Five, four, three, two. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be really interested. And the Silver Bullet Band. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you know who used to play on that was were a couple of members of the Eagles. I did not know yeah. that. Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Chip, George Thorogood. And the, is it Destroyers? Destroyers, he's got it. Very good. Here we go for a one-point lead. John Doggett, Elvis Costello. Oh, I was never an Elvis Costello fan. Ever, ever. No, I I couldn't. I'm not even going to try. That's all right. These get harder as they go along. Oh, good. Chip, Iggy Pop. No. And the Stooges. No, I should have known that one. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. After round one, Chip's got a two-to-one lead. Coming into the second category, we're doing numbers here. I'm going to ask a question. You're going to give me the answer. It is a number. And, John, we'll start with you again. Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain all died tragically young, and they were all what age? 27. That's correct. Wow. Point for John. They call it the 27 Club. Chip? The title of a 1966 hit by the Rolling Stones is all about having a whole lot of nervous breakdowns. How many? I'm not going to get it. You My, got it? John Doggett to steal. Oh, how many? 19th. My 19th. My 19th. Nervous breakdown. Okay. Back to John Doggett. This revered prog rock album by Rush is named after a year in the future in which the album story is set. Which year is that? not a big Rush fan either, but I, I think I can see the album cover, but I cannot see the title. Not a big fan of We Are the Priests of the Temple of Syrinx? Come on. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> hey, uh, Dusty, I hate to break this to you, but but I'm a little older than that. A little bit. 2112. 2112. the name of the album. All right. Man, wouldn't it be something if we all get there? Yeah. Woo! Closer every day. Yeah, hey, yeah man. Right, Chip. Freddie Mercury, lead singer of Queen, attributed his extraordinary vocal range to having been born with an extra large mouth. How many extra teeth did he have? Four. That is correct. Chip's back on the board. God, that was great. That was good. I'm I'm impressed. John Doggett? I saw the movie. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good flick. Yeah. John Doggett, Pink Floyd dropped their perennial classic Dark Side to the Moon in this year. 1972. Missed it by that much. 73. Oh. That's the year Pro Farmer started, 1973. And that is, Dark Side of the Moon is probably one of the, the quintessential rock albums 
of all time, and it is one of my favorite. In fact, I was on a plane here a couple nights ago, and I had it cranked all the way up on the headphones, and I was just really enjoying it. It is just as great. See, I enjoyed it until September of 1991, and I went on a 20-hour drive with a guy, and that was all he played the whole way. <laughs> well, shoot, that'll wear you out yeah, on anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Chip, similar question for you. Led Zeppelin 4. It's got Stairway, When the Levee Breaks, Rock and Roll, Battle of Evermore. Which year did that one come out? Well, it would have been close to the same time. Uh, I'm going to go with his original answer, 1972. Missed it by mm-hmm. one, 1971. Uh, I, I was signaling two, and I, yeah, I thought it was 72. All right. We got a good game here going so far. Chip's got three. No, John's it would be a good two. game if there were more correct answers than. <laughs> I, I told you it was going to be hard. That's all right. I expect you guys to slam dunk this one because the third category here is lyrics. I'm going to start a lyrical phrase. You finish it for a bonus point. Name the artist and song name. Going to John Dogg at first. Big wheels keep on turning. Proud Mary keeps on running. It's uh, Proud Mary and it's Creedence Clearwater Revival. I was actually going for Leonard Skinner and Sweet Home Alabama, but I actually think that that lyrical phrase is in both of those songs. So I think it is, too. I think that's two points for John Doggett. Chip looks like he wants Pr- to work the reps Proud on Mary this one. Proud Mary keep on burning. Rolling, rolling, rolling down the river. river. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm stumped. Okay. <laughs> Did not expect <laughs> that. Go. Okay. <laughs> Coming to you, Chip. On a dark desert highway. On a dark desert highway, I've been running. Now. This is something I know very little about. You you cool wind in in my my hair. hair. (laughs) That's the Eagles Hotel in California. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I'm terrible at this. John Doggett. Uh, Sir. Old Black Water, keep on rolling. Yeah, that's that's Creedence. No, 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 it's no, not. no, 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 that's Doobie Brothers. That is Doobie yeah, Brothers. That, it's from the What's the next part of the lyrical phrase? Old Black Water, keep on rolling. Chip wants to steal. Go Mississippi ahead, Moon, won't you keep on shining on me? There we go. That's a point for each of oh, you there. Boy. Woo! <laughs> told you this was going to be good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the 1970s here. Chip? Yeah? Thunder only happens when it's raining. You could sing it if it helps. Lovers only. Oh, what is it? Lovers only. Is oh, that right? You're so close. You're so close. It's not lovers. I'm going to give you the first one. It's players. Players only. Keep on playing. Play. I don't know. Oh. I could sing it if it was playing. <laughs> players only love you when they're playing. Players yeah. only love Dreams. you when they're playing. Fleetwood Mac. Yes. That's the yes. one. John, <laughs> coming to you again. This is a good one. I can't not say it in the cadence. You get up every morning from your alarm clock's warning. Take the 815 to, to the city. There you go. There you go. Bandit song. Oh, gosh. Oh, I got it. Go. Bachman Turner Overdrive oh, taking care of business. There you go. You know, we, BTO! Yeah, yeah. You, you used to play that in the fraternity house all the time, over <laughs> and over and over and over again on an old, old, old stereo with really bad speakers. Yeah. When the afternoon of AgriTalk first started off for two years it was called market rally mm-hmm. and at the bottom of the hour for about six months we used it for bump every day taking care of business taking care of business all right TBO. last question right now the score john six points chip five so mm-hmm. this is to tie possibly to break the tie chip welcome back my friends to the show that never ends welcome back, my friends to the show that never ends come alive 
Doggett's got it. Got it? It's, it's Beatles from the uh, Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club band. Oh, oh it's, it's no. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Yeah. Oh, God. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Welcome to the show. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, that's that, that's that, yeah, that never ends. ends. That's the opening of Come, what song? Come Alive. Come uh, alive. Carn Evil Nine, the very strangely named song, but it's We're So Glad You Could Attend. Come Inside, Come, Come Inside. inside. Yes. Spoken like a carnival yeah. barker. There we go. We settled it. All right. With six points to five, John, John Doggett. Hey. Is king cheese of music trivia, hey. at least I, in the agriculture I, I, I world. I missed some that I should not have missed, but you know what? The heat was on, and frankly, you know. Chip I'm not was, sure where the, uh, why were there no Nickelback questions? <laughs> <laughs> because I value my dignity, Chip. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't be a fun hater. <laughs> well, John, do you want to lock us out here? You know, I do, and, and I just want to say to Chip, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a, a lot of fun. You know, we're about 28 podcast now this is number 30 i tell you what we've had a lot of fun but this has been probably the most fun and and i truly truly value our friendship our partnership i do too just so nice to have you here and be with us today and be here at commodity classic you know it's always important to have so many different parts of our industry to to be here today so it's great to have you here chip flory host of agritalk which is heard on more than 135 affiliate radio stations and wherever you get podcasts, including Spotify. Thanks for joining us to chat here at Commodity Classic. I'm NCGA CEO John Doggett, and we hope you'll join us again real soon for the next episode of Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. That is going to wrap up this edition of Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. New episodes arrive monthly, so make sure you subscribe in your favorite app and join us again soon. Visit ncga.com to learn more or sign up for the association's email newsletter. Wherever John May Roam is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association with editing and production oversight by Larry Kilgore III. And it's produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. For the National Corn Growers Association, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.